0: hello and welcome to the gestalt it rundown today is wednesday october the 12th and if you are a fan of cajun food you're in luck because today is national gumbo day um joining me with as my co-host this week is uh one of the people i love who enjoys food of all kinds mr max mortiaro max welcome to the show thanks And uh, we've got a great lineup of stories headed your way. So let's just dive right in uh, because Max, a a new report from the industry firm trend focus is claiming that the disc drive market is in for some stormy weather Uh, projected number of disc drives shipped in Q3 of this year is supposed to be around 39 million. That sounds like a lot. However, it's down 14% from Q2 and a whopping 42% from this same quarter last year. Now, We can probably take a guess that supply chain issues are going to be causing the problems. Uh, If I had to put a finger on it, probably inflation or something like that. But trend focus is also citing lower demand from cloud providers and also ongoing global conflicts. Um, Max, is this due to the fact that cloud providers are not growing their storage as quickly as they might have expected? Or is there some other bigger trend in hard drive usage that we need to be worried about?
1: Well, I think that uh, there are definitely more trends uh, happening here in the background than just uh, cloud storage consumption. First of all, you know, we have to look at, uh, uh, there's an overall decline of HDD. Uh, the HDDs have been moved down, you know, flash has displaced uh, HDDs. Uh, QLC drives are becoming more and more, let's say, competitive from a price point perspective. Uh, on the, the density of those drives is also increasing. And uh, in general, let's say that HDD was more for kind of, you know, infrequent access, secondary storage use cases and more even archive, you know, uh, for this kind of uh, use cases. And there's another aspect as well, which is probably not a trend right now, but it's probably going to become a trend in the coming months. Hard drives are bulky, they get hotter faster, you know, they get hot faster. They have uh, a much higher energy consumption than flash. So uh, it, while it not might not be a, too much of a challenge or a problem in certain geographies, maybe like the U.S. or Asia-Pacific, you know, the current geopolitical situation is uh, hitting very heavily in Europe. So uh, data centers in Europe are very, uh, let's say, are feeling the, the heat about energy costs. And that's also impacting, you know, technology choices. Do we need to go for hard drives? Or should it not be time, you know, to, you know, call it a day for HDs and go with QLC flash? Now, uh, to close on that very briefly, uh, you know, the, the challenge of QLC is, of course, endurance, but when you build the right architectures and you can optimize how you write and you read from Flash, then you can you know, get a better efficiency and durability out of your drives. Here's one for you, Tom. Monitoring and analytics giant Splunk filed a lawsuit last week against uh, alleging intellectual property theft against the CEO of competitor Cribble. The CEO of Cribble is clean sharp, and he's a former employee of Splunk. And accordingly to the lawsuit, he grabbed code from uh, Splunk before he left and started his own company. The lawsuit further claims that Cribble lured Splunk employees away and encouraged them to take even more code out of their way, uh, on their way out of the door. Sharp responded by saying the goal was always to interoperate with Splunk, but that he and other founders did not steal any code from the company. Tom, lawsuits are a nasty way to settle business. What's going on there?
0: Well, I think what's happened here is that Splunk has finally reached the point where they realized that they can't settle this any other way. So they're going to file a lawsuit in court. And uh, first, I'm going to disclaim, I am not a lawyer. I'm friends with lawyers. I watch lawyers on YouTube, but I am not a lawyer. Um, So getting that out of the way, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to get a whole bunch of ugly discovery and we're going to open up the code bases of both of these companies because you're going to have to compare it. And we've seen this before in cases like Oracle versus Google. You're basically doing a code walk for people who don't know what code is. And anyone who's ever gone to Stack Overflow knows that there's a lot of code that's available out there, and eventually all the code just kind of looks the same. So let's get down to the actual brass tacks of what happened here. Splunk is a very large company. We know that. They are probably the leader in the monitoring, analytics, security market. Um, Everybody wants to work with them. And Splunk licenses out the ability to interoperate with their code. Fine. Great. Well, then Cribble comes along. They're a startup. They're scrappy. They've uh, adjusted to fix some of the issues that Splunk has. They're going after some of that market. The question is, with a company that started by a former employee of Splunk, how much of that code is designed to interoperate with Splunk's original code versus a straight lift? Well, you may be able to say to yourself, oh, that's easy. We'll just run a grep against both code bases and print out a diff. Yeah, if you did that for most code in the world, you'd probably get a lot of hits because there's only so many ways to write a function, write an error return. Um, The only way that you'll actually be able to determine that is if you get a lot of like comments that are the same or references to code pieces that are proprietary. And so that's a it's, it's a dangerous trap. Here's the ultimate problem, and, and I empathize with the people at Kribble significantly, because it is hard to build a tool that works the same as a tool you used to work on. Because whether or not you realize it, you are incorporating methods that you are familiar with. And I reference back to the original Berkeley Systems Distribution uh, cleanroom implementation of Linux, or not Linux, I'm sorry, of Unix. How did they manage to pull that off without causing any copyright issues? Well, that's easy. They had one person go through the code and describe how it works and write that description down, and then they had a completely different team go in and implement code based on the description that that person wrote. That's a clean room reverse engineering implementation. The people who looked at the original code never have an interaction with the people writing the code for the new code base. That's the only way to say for a fact that when you describe a function that implements a device driver that returns an error code, that they're not unconsciously using methods that they saw in the original code. And that's going to be a very difficult thing to prove in court. Ultimately, I think what's going to happen is, is that this case is going to settle. Because the question of whether or not these companies want to have their code bases opened up for legal review is going to be extremely difficult on both sides of it. Somehow there's going to be a monetary settlement involved. I think where it broke down is is that the settlement was originally going to be a very high number that Cribble didn't agree with. And so they're going to litigate this in court. I'm interested to see how this comes out, because like we saw with Oracle versus uh, Google This is going to be a very huge problem if it makes it to the point where a very learned legal scholar has to make decisions on code when he probably couldn't code his way out of a basic paperback. Max, there was a story that came up that I know that was kind of uh, near to your area of expertise, and it has to do with uh, NVMe over fabric. Now, if you're an NVMe over fabric fan, you probably want to turn your head away for this because this is not going to be a popular story. Uh, News has come out this week that Pavilion Data, the last startup that was focused on NVMe over Fabric, has gone out of business. Now, the company looked like it might be on the mend last year when they hired a new CEO, Dario Zamorian, and raised $45 million in a funding round. Now, here's the catch, though, because you think, oh, they went out of business. They must have gone bankrupt and run out of cash. According to reports, that's not actually the case. It sounds like Zamorian and the board were trying to shop the company to be acquired, like many of the other third generation NVMe over fabric, all flash uh, storage companies were, and they couldn't make it happen. So then they turned around and said, well, we're going to need more money to land this, and they couldn't get any money either. So without a buyer and without more money, it's time to close up shop. Uh, Max, what does this mean not only for Pavilion data, but kind of for the future of this NVMe over fabric um, uh, idea?
1: Well, it's going to be a brutal answer. I'll give the short, brutal answer, and then I'll develop on that. I think it means nothing for NVMe over fabrics, as sad as it is for, for uh, you know, pavilion data. So, you know, you know there's, there's a very interesting uh, take on our friends from the register, you know, where they explain kind of the fate of all these old flash arrays and so on. And, you know, it was not just pavilion data. They had competition. There was E8 storage. There was Accelero. Both were acquired by cloud providers. Which means that the technology fundamentally, you know, wasn't bad. I mean, the, the idea was interesting. It was based on performance and so on. But in the end, I mean, at least from my perspective, NVMe over fabrics is, you know, it, it's it's kind of a, a, pro, a protocol, a feature. It's a way of you know connecting things. And if you base your product entirely on that, then you know it's like if you uh, base your entire concept of a car. And sorry for the very overused analogy. If you base your car on being electric and having a battery, well fine, but you know, what next? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a basic concept. And, you know, we've been evaluating in research I've been writing in, in, over the past, you know, 18 months, we've been evaluating a lot of storage solutions. And, you know, even if pavilion data was very strong in terms of performance, the challenge it had compared to the solution is that it had no cloud integration capabilities. It had no data management features, so it was doing one thing. It was providing very high performance storage, but it was, you know, falling short on, on other things. So that's, you know, from a decision making perspective, if you look at the solution and and they have some other competitors which are still active in the space right now. Well, you know, you have to think: Do I want ultimate performance? But then. I need to build all of my integrations you know, manually or do I look for a solution which is perhaps, let's say not 100% as fast, maybe 90 or 95% as fast, but offers a broader ecosystem. So I think that that was the challenge there. You know, that said, uh, the, the technology they had developed, the, the architecture was really interesting. So it's always sad to see a company go. And with that, uh, there's one last interesting story today and it's about uh, 5G and uh, aviation frequencies so the saga of uh, the faa versus 5g keeps flying along in a new letter sent to the fcc by aviation spectrum resources incorporated sri if i say it right which is a representative of several industry groups the argument is made that the ban on c-band 5g uh, should be permanent the letter states that temporary ban put in place earlier this year preventing transmission in specific frequency ranges around U.S. airports has had no significant impact on carriers and should be made permanent to prevent issues with aircraft systems. This news comes as AT&T and Verizon begin rolling out C-band frequencies across the U.S. to boost performance for users. Tom, are we ever going to to land uh, the debate on this issue?
0: I really wish we would because I want to taxi into the terminal and get off this ride. Yeah, um, Max. I know you're not in the U.S., so this is kind of uh, maybe for our our uh, listeners overseas. This might be a little bit of a uh, an unknown for you. But basically, here's the problem: five um, G rollouts are starting to expand across the entire spectrum range. That's how we're getting more bandwidth. Um, back in March, we we've started seeing this rollout happen, and and basically for the the users of AT and T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, which are the three major uh, cellular providers in the u.s we've seen bandwidth speeds increase like like i can go out and i can actually use my phone like a phone instead of it crawling along um but where's the problem well it turns out that the faa uh, as we covered previously on the rundown the faa uh filed this notice with the fcc both federal agencies saying hey we noticed that there could potentially be a problem if if there was an antenna pointed any more up uh degrees than 90 around an airport in this specific frequency band that might impact altimeters on older airplanes. If you heard a lot of kvetching in that whole statement, you now understand why this has irritated so many people. There could potentially maybe might be a problem sometimes with some things, but we don't know for sure. So you need to not use this at all. That's like saying Uh, One time, lettuce was contaminated with disease, so you should never eat tacos again. Um, There's a lot of things that go into that. And so basically what's happened is, is that AT&T and Verizon have agreed to limit the use of that spectrum around airports until at least July of 2023. In the meantime, exactly what I knew was going to happen, happened. The FAA told the airlines to go replace those bad old altimeters, which could very well be impacted by those uh, frequency bands this was a stalling tactic this has always been a stalling tactic the faa got caught flat-footed because it turns out technology moves a whole lot faster than the airline industry and now you've got an industry group not the airlines not the faa but an industry group that is put together on behalf of a bunch of people writing a letter saying hey we put the ban in place for a few months and nothing bad has happened so far we might as well make it permanent, which is a fancy way of saying we found some airplanes that we can't replace, the altimeter's in, and we don't want to retire those capital assets, so we're going to put a policy decision in place. And my answer is, too bad. Um, we've talked about this at length. I've recorded conversations episodes about it. We talked about it on the rundown. I've written blog posts about it. The frequencies that we're operating in now cover a wide spectrum of things, whether it's 5G, whether it's satellite communications, what have you. We have to get ready for this to happen. We have to put guards in place. And right now we're putting all of that on the industry that's building the transmitters, whether it's 5G, whether it's Wi-Fi, what have you. And it's about time for the impacted organizations to step up to the plate. Don't come to me anymore with these ideas of we need to ban this procedurally because otherwise something bad might happen. How about you tell me here's a six-month moratorium and in that time, here's what we're going to do to fix the problem on our side. Because if the FAA had come to the FCC and said we need eight months to get all of these altimeters replaced, that would have been a much better story than you might have to ban this whole thing permanently in this exclusion zone Because in 50 years, when we're running on new airframes, this problem might still come up. And anyone out there who's listening to the story knows what happened the last time the FAA uh, put a regulation in place for the FCC to prevent transmission problems. Um, The cabin door has closed. You need to turn off the cellular transmission functionality of your mobile devices for the remainder of the flight. How many people out there on the rundown still do that? If you put your hands up, you're lying. So this is the problem. Once the rules put in place and made permanent, we're never going to be able to change it or we're not going to be able to change it for a long time. So I think that this goes back to the FAA and their industry support groups needing to get off their butts and get things done instead of trying to legislate technology. All right, Max, we had one more story that we wanted to take a closer look at. I'll let you go ahead and read it in because it's uh, not good news for Intel.
1: It's not good news is an understatement, I guess. So, uh, well, uh, the, what's happening is that uh, apparently there's been a, um, a kind of a BIOS source leak for Alder Lake architectures and Intel is not happy that the source code for their Alder Lake BIOS has been, <clears throat> sorry, has been leaked online. The UFI code was nabbed by someone and posted to the internet as a six gigabyte file, containing all kinds of secret things. One of the big finds, uh, finds is a private key uh, for Intel Boot Guard, uh, which is a security feature designed to create a secure booting environment. So it's definitely uh, a, a huge thing from a security perspective. Uh, there's been no official word on who leaked the data, but signs tend to point to an ODM in China that created a GitHub repository that was cloned and distributed rapidly. Tom, how bad is that for Intel?
0: Anytime the private key for anything you use for signing a security file is leaked, it's a bad thing. Here's the problem. You're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, well, it's just a BIOS file. How bad can it be? I have one word for you. Rootkit. I want you to think about how bad it could be if I had the private key for a trusted boot extension file for UEFI and I could throw something in the BIOS of your system just even if it was, all it was was a shim that allowed me to go out and pull a rootkit down every time your system rebooted itself. Can you say persistence? And it's signed. It will never throw a warning because it's trusted. That's the thing. Look, I get it. Like, it, as soon as this came out, people were like, oh, this can't be the BIOS. It's too big. It's six gig. There's no BIOS file. You guys ever written out text files? Yeah, text files are enormous. And when those compile down, we're not pulling the whole thing in. This is a massive issue. And I'm not just talking about that signed boot key file. We've already got security researchers that are pouring over these files looking for exploits. One security researcher said that he found a whole bunch of hidden CPU registers that can be called that will never show up in the system. That's bad. Like You can now create essentially a level of invisible malware. Yeah, criminals are going to get a hold of it, and it's going to do a whole lot of work. But think about the rise of state-sponsored groups. Think about the rise of nation-state-on-nation-state hacking with these kinds of malware devices. Could you imagine what would happen if every Alder Lake CPU suddenly had signed malware running in the code? I mean, look at all of the problems that Intel has had already. Spectre, Meltdown, um, some of the uh, the breaches in uh, uh, SGX that we've seen like some of the the ability to read uh, registers. Now I I can invalidate all of that and just run code directly on these hidden registers in the CPU because, well, guess what? I have access to them. And like, it's it's such a pain in the neck. And then to hear, like, uh, of course, there is no official word of what happened. Unofficially, it looks like there was maybe a disgruntled employee or someone who didn't know what they were doing. They were working with an ODM, which had access to, you know, Intel chips on their boards and the unsaid things that it might've been a company that works very closely with the Lenovo. Um, they leaked this online. Maybe they intended to. maybe they did not intend to whatever happened. That guy didn't have a job anymore. We know that for sure. That's not a mistake you get to come back from, but, but the, the toothpaste is out of the tube folks, like, like this is out there. What are you going to do? Like, like, I, I get like what there's a security hole in like an app and I can rewrite that software and issue a patch. Like we see that all the time. We talk about the stories on the rundown weekly where there's like you know, a remote code exploit. There's a known vulnerability, go patch your systems. How do you patch a chip? You don't, you, you, you can't, you can't do this. I mean, Max, you've, you've worked with this a lot.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we, uh, when, when I was working on the, uh, on the infrastructure side, when we had to deal with Spectre and Meltdown, I mean, everybody was going completely nuts you know and the problem is that this has kept happening and happening and happening and now I'm, I'm at a point you know I I'm really wondering you know this is massive I mean the implications of that are really massive because it kind of breaks the fundamentally breaks the entire kind of you know uh, chain of trust in the uh, in the uh, security architecture and it does that at the silicon level which is you know the the the, the is level so you uh, know when I'm thinking about that I think of and maybe I'm wrong, but I look at it. It seems to be the same dimension as the uh, 737 Max, you know, the, the Boeing uh, 737 grounding. Somehow, what's going to happen with Alder Lake? I mean, if you do that, even if you keep, you know, selling this technology, if you put it, well, sorry, but you're selling something which isn't secure. So, what happens? What happens? Do we need to? Uh, do they need to ditch everything and restart it? I mean, there's a lot of money involved, vendors, etc. The, the I, I just cannot foresee all of the consequences of that Either they are going to just shrug and say you know whatever we'll keep selling or they're going to have to make some drastic choices but this is really bad and 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 sorry to say but i mean intel seems to has a lot of precedence uh with uh, their cpus and, and so on
0: well here's the other thing you have to understand alder lake is they're currently shipping generation of cpus why because sapphire rapids is so far behind right now that they're having to you know squeeze a little more juice out of this workhorse so if they have to if they have to issue a massive patch to Alder Lake to make it work, that's going to be a problem. Not only that, how much of the code from Alder Lake was ported to Sapphire Rapids? Could obviously the keys are going to change, like like that's a given. But if I found an exploit in Alder Lake that I can exploit reliably even without the key, how likely is it that that exploit is present in Sapphire Rapids because of that TikTok methodology of design? And and I here's the deal. Like we talk about this a lot and you mentioned it. It seems like Intel keeps coming up in these conversations. And and I hate to say it because I'm a friend of Intel. We work uh, closely with Intel at Tech Field Day and Gestalt IT. But why is this happening? And I think the answer comes down to one very simple thing. Intel is trying to do too much in the chip. When you look at all of the things that Intel wants to put on their chips, secure boot extensions, um, SGX, all of these other things, it's like, man, one little hole in the dike and you've got a huge problem. And then you flip around and you look at ARM and ARM's like, we don't care. We want to make the cheapest, fastest, simple CPUs that we can. It's the risk versus six argument all over again. Should the chip do more justifying a higher per unit cost with all of the complexity that goes into it? Or should we just make dirt, cheap, simple, fast CPUs and build other things into it. Now, obviously, the, the we've, gotten, we've gotten into that chiplet methodology that was pioneered in ARM that's now kind of worming its way into Intel when they realize, you know, maybe we don't need to be doing that. But they're still building those chiplets onto the die. And that's still going to cause these problems. And, you know, it's not an easy fix. If it was an easy fix, this wouldn't be a problem. If I could just, you know, issue a patch. But then again, <laughs> we started talking about that with Spectrum Meltdown how many years ago now? And those are still exploitable to a certain degree. And the only fix is to reduce the performance on the CPU 15 to 20% and reduce or remove the functionality that Spectre and Meltdown rely on. Like, I I don't know where this ends at this point.
1: Yes. And, 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 and you know, the other thing, Tom, is also, you know, whole long pa- customers are going to be patient with that because, you know, of course, uh, customers don't want to break dependencies to their applications, to their architecture and so on. So out of, let's say, uh, habit and cautiousness, they want to kind of keep running the same stuff to avoid breaking dependencies, but you know this is causing a massive risk for all organizations of all sorts. So, I mean, I'm kind of wondering if this is going to be just like the end, you know, uh, event which happens and people will just move on and continue, or if this is kind of the beginning of the end or a coffin or a nail in uh, in Intel's coffin, you know. And, and as you said. We like working with Intel. We're good. We are good friends. Uh, there are a lot of good things going on there, but you know the challenges with the CPU architecture seems to never go away, and and as you say, it's getting worse and worse. So I don't know if someone over there has kind of the uh, uh, has the courage perhaps to kind of take a candid look at where they've gone uh, with the uh, CPU architecture and whether it's not time you know for a kind of a courageous or kind of revolutionary kind of refresh uh, in in their way of thinking, you know? Kind of, you know, when when we like to kind of make fun of Apple when they say courage, because they're kind of changing the the lightning adapter with a USB-C or whatever, but maybe, you know, Intel should maybe have the courage to uh, kind of take three steps back and look at where they are now, you know, in terms of CPU architecture and whether it's not time to kind of reboot what they've done.
0: Yeah, it's one kind of courage to remove the floppy drive or the, uh, the CD-ROM drive from a, a desktop computer. It's an entirely <laughs> different kind of courage to look around and go, hey, guys, we've got a massive problem. and We need to fix it. So who knows? Um, here's hoping that somebody over at Intel is, is uh, looking at this going, maybe, maybe it's time for us to, to do something a little bit differently. All right, we've got a busy couple of weeks ahead, and we got some things we wanted to make sure that you were aware of. Uh, The first one is actually happening this week. It's Google Cloud Next. It starts tomorrow uh, on the 13th and runs through the 15th. Um, I'm sure we're going to see lots of cool Google Cloud stuff coming out about that. We've already seen, uh, you know, Mandiant on stage now that they're a part of Google talking about some of the cool stuff that they were working on. Next week is jam-packed. Oracle Cloud World will be going on on the 17th through the 20th. Uh, We also have the CXL Forum, which is happening on the 18th through the 20th. And Tech Field Day 26 will be happening October 19th through the 21st. Um, You definitely want to go to techfieldday.com and learn a little bit more about what's going on there. Stephen Foskett and the crew will be out in California. They'll be doing some stuff around uh, not only Tech Field Day, but the CXL Summit. Um, And you'll be able to hear a lot more about that. So stay tuned not only to Tech Field Day, but Gestalt IT to learn a little bit more about some of the cool things that we have coming up. Speaking of cool things coming up, Max, if
1: people want to check out some of the stuff you're working on, where can they go? Uh, People can check us out at techunplugio slash blog uh, to get the latest articles we've been covering
0: awesome and i highly recommend it max and and his group are really great at analyzing the technology especially on the server and cloud side i rely on them quite frequently when i have to touch things that don't move packets and uh you know totally check them out and if you want to check out the rundown we are here every wednesday around twelve thirty eastern time with all of the fun and sometimes not so fun news that happens in the it world um if you want to check us out on our youtube channel that's youtube.com slash gestalt it video give us a like and a follow Um, That way you'll get notified whenever our new videos come out. Um, You can also listen to us in a podcast if you prefer to consume your news of the audio variety and our our dulcet tones reading in the stories. Um, We uh, keep an eye on stories throughout the week. So if you have something that you'd like us to cover on the rundown, please tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown. And we're always happy to check out uh, fun stories or uh, do a little deeper analysis on something you think might be important down the road. Um, we'll be back next week Um, i will be back with a special guest co-host to take on more news Uh, steven will be at tech field day but um, remember that we uh, we love doing this we love hearing from all of the listeners out there who enjoy uh, our take on the news so please make sure you leave us a comment on youtube Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and until next week take care of yourself and we will see you soon